0: Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, thank you this morning for our classes, for our time to just be equipped better, uh, really to understand theology and and where we've come from in the church. Help us understand the men and women who came before us and who even died or were persecuted for the faith. Let us be stalwarts, steadfast in the faith, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're really... Forrest and I were just talking about the book series, Long Line of Godly Men most of which is by Steve Lawson. And that's really what we often look at in church history. We're looking at a long line of godly men, men who stood for the truth, who taught the truth, who preached the truth, who wrote books about the truth of scripture. And there will be some women along the way, but for the most part, God has called certain men to stand up at certain times. And and we know that The scripture calls men to lead the church, so often they're the ones out in the forefront. But there are many women who were persecuted. We talked about some of those in the early church. We might come to some others later during the Scottish Covenant issue that came about. But we're in the middle of the Reformation. We looked at Erasmus, and remember he was the Roman Catholic who brought the scriptures, the church really, back to the Greek scriptures, the Greek New Testament. And he published that so that men like Luther and Calvin, could have a good, reliable New Testament to look at. And so they could point there for doctrine and and mine the scriptures, exegete the Bible, instead of going off of what the Roman Catholic tradition said, or what the Pope was making up at that moment. And so that's really, the Reformation was about getting back to the scriptures when it comes to salvation and when it comes to worship. How are we to see the church? What does the Bible say? How are we to think about the gospel and proclaim its truth? What does the Bible say? Now, that's quite a bit different than previous. In the Middle Ages, it was what does the Pope say? What does the priest say? People didn't even have a copy of the scriptures in their own tongue. So you just had to trust what the tradition said. So we've come now to Calvin. We've seen that Luther started, typically we think of him as the one who lit the candle. He started the Reformation Calvin comes a little bit later. He hears of these Protestant Lutheran teachings when he's in college. He has to run away and get out of France before he's killed. And we covered some of that last week, how he was born in France, 1509. His mother died. His father wanted him to be a lawyer. There he is looking like a youngster. He's got a longer beard than some of us older guys here. Um, he goes to get educated. We looked at this. He quit law school and enrolled at a different college. And his, his father decided, first of all, his father did want him to be a priest, but decided a lawyer made more money. And it was there at the second college that he went to that he heard preaching, preaching from a man who was going against some of the Pope's teaching. His name was Nicholas Cop. And uh Calvin used to enjoy hearing Cop preach and got to know him and got to know sort of the student group that heard Cop preach. And whenever Cop was being persecuted, then all his friends are going to be thrown in with that. So they all had to leave. Here they are, or a statue, sorry, a statue of Nicholas Cop where he preached outside at the college there in Paris. So we were just at this point now where Calvin's on the run. He's He's fully reformed and he's not on the run like we would think of today. He's got to go hide out in a cabin somewhere in the woods. He's just left the country and gone to other places that are more open to the Reformation, particularly in France and switzerland so calvin is going around and he has already such a good student of the word that he wrote the first edition of his famous book the institutes of the christian religion so he wrote that at 26 most of us in our 40s and 50s 60s are still trying to catch up with what the bible is teaching calvin at 26 before the computer before logos bible software before all of these things He had enough understanding and enough resources to study it out and just put down some basics of the faith, a basic theology textbook. And it was intended as a defense of the faith and an instruction manual for other pastors. He wasn't officially a pastor yet, but he wanted the pastors to understand because suddenly you have all these Protestants, but they're really babies in the faith. So what do they preach? And let's make sure they don't preach the wrong thing. So he he went back to France, uh, had to run again. So he goes to Strasbourg. And uh, because of French movements, troop movements, he had to go around this battle that was happening. And he ends up going through Geneva. And I mentioned last week that he met this guy. This is the same guy here, just one's a color and one's black and white. Uh, he met this guy, William Farrell. And Farrell was, was truly a red-headed, fiery preacher. And Farrell was sort of the interim preacher in Geneva, Switzerland. And here comes Calvin. He knows Farrell somewhat. So he stays there and he says, I'm going on to Strasbourg. I just want to write. I just want to study. Maybe I'll teach if somebody would like to know what my beliefs in theology are. And Farrell essentially says, God will curse your books if you don't stay here and be a preacher and a pastor in this city because we need pastors here. And that scared Calvin. Uh, There he is sort of, you know, being thrown back in his chair and Pharaoh's pointing a finger at him, and he believed it. Calvin believed that God would curse him because there was a need for preaching, and that's clearly in the scriptures. And while writing theology books is helpful, it doesn't have the same status in scripture, the same commands as uh, some are called to be pastors. So he stayed there, and he did not want God to curse his studies. Now he went on to continue writing, so that just goes to show you can be a A pastor, a person can be a pastor and a scholar. But Calvin thought, I just want to be quiet in my study and not have people bother me. And I remember hearing this story before I went into ministry. And I was much the same way. I loved uh, studying. I got rid of all my business books. And I was replacing them with theology books. And I was playing catch up because I'd been a Christian too long and not known the truth about Scripture. And I just, you know, I wanted maybe an elder in the church would be fine. But this idea of preaching and teaching all the time. That just seemed like a lot of work. And I remember reading this story, being convicted, thinking, you know, the church needs preachers. The church needs pastors. And I don't want to be like Calvin and and have to be cursed by somebody before I go into ministry. So so I think we stopped somewhere around this slide here. Um, So Calvin agrees to stay. He's going to be the preaching pastor there that we might call the senior pastor in Geneva. And Geneva was newly Protestant. So they really don't know what to believe. And that's one of the reasons that Pharaoh's asking Calvin to stay there. And so those two came up with the articles uh, on the organization of the church and its worship. An official document. And they said, here's how we're going to do the Lord's Supper. Here's how we're going to excommunicate or do church discipline. Here's how we're going to do congregational singing. You know, in the Roman Catholic system... It was just the choir, or the the choir boys or choir girls. Uh, Congregational singing was downplayed. The marriage laws were going to be reworked, not according to the Catholic system, but according to Scripture. And then they they wanted people to subscribe to their basic confession of faith. They wanted people to state what they believed, instead of just assume everybody's a Christian because they were born in a Christian country. So this is what we might call the... The church bylaws today, we would call these. Who gets to be a member of the church? Who gets to take the Lord's Supper, be excommunicated? Sort of a doctrinal statement and bylaws. Well, by November of that year, the city council was already pretty upset with these two preachers. Um, The issue really came to a head over, of all things, the use of unleavened bread and the Easter Eucharist. And this is still an issue today. I have sometimes people ask me, you know, why why do we use leavened bread? And they don't split ways over it. But it is kind of this debate within Christianity. Well, we should use unleavened uh, unleavened bread, like the disciples did at the Last Supper, and particularly on the Easter uh, Lord's Supper. Well, another city in Switzerland, Bern, who was close allies with Geneva, because at this time, what happened in Switzerland is that some of the counties were Catholic and some were Protestant. And of course, they were fighting back and forth and having these battles. And so certain cities would ally up with each other. And Bern and Geneva were together. Well, Bern had been using unleavened bread, and they were urging Geneva to follow that in order to bring about some level of uniformity in the Swiss church ceremonies. So let's be uniform. Let's all use unleavened bread. So this becomes an issue now in Geneva. And, and Calvin and Pharaoh were at odds with the city council on this. Just some more information on this. The city council ordered Calvin and Pharaoh they, to use unleavened bread. But they refused. Why would they refuse? Because it's not commanded in Scripture. Yes, the disciples use unleavened bread. But later in 1 Corinthians, Paul just uses the Gentile term. Or, sorry, not Gentile. The Greek general term for bread. And to a Gentile, bread is leavened bread. They would rarely use unleavened bread. So Paul was not specific to the Gentiles when he spoke to them. And Calvin and Pharaoh thought this is binding the conscience of pastors, of churches, when it's not commanded in scripture. And they did not administer the Eucharist at all because they were, you know, basically going against the government. See, this idea of church versus government and goes way back, even to the Reformation and further. So a riot erupted in the city because the people think we've got to have the Lord's Supper. This isn't right. And the city council told Calvin and Pharaoh to leave. So he hasn't even been there very long. And they say, out. Get out of here. Calvin, fine. I'll leave. I'll go to Zurich, where Zwingli is. And they'll plead their case there. Maybe get, a, get some help in Zurich. And, and burn. Uh, was then instructed to help restore the ministers. But Geneva Council refused to readmit the two men. So they left. They left the country and went to Basel. Uh, while there, Pharaoh was invited to pastor a church in, in Neuchatal, which I think is in Germany. And Calvin's invited elsewhere by Martin Buzer, another reformer, and Wolfgang Capito to lead a church in Strasbourg. So Calvin eventually does get to Strasbourg. It just takes a while and he gets there and he accepts that pastorate and he thinks he's going to be there the rest of his life. So it's, it's really uh, what's happening is people are leaving France and they're going to Switzerland and they're going to Germany and they need German uh, French speaking pastors in Germany in these churches. So Calvin is French. He speaks French fluently and what he did was go there and pastor a French speaking congregation. So here's the cities that we're talking about. He's born and Nyon, he goes to college in Paris. Uh, you can see Strasbourg, which it kind of goes back and forth between France and Germany at this time. I think when Calvin goes there, it's, it's German in those days. Uh, you can see Basel or Basel, which is kind of on the border of, of Germany. Uh, most of the time, it's in Switzerland. And then Geneva, the southern tip there. Question? this may be the this looks like the modern map with the cities placed on it because Czech Republic i don't think it was the Czech Republic back then but it is today so uh, there's Calvin he goes to partner up with uh, Martin Bucer Martin Bucer uh, another reformer we won't have time to really talk much about uh, but he had quite a bit of uh, theological training and taught uh, even in England The Protestant Reformed Theology. So Calvin spends um, about three years there in Strasbourg, And he preached two sermons every Sunday. He taught every single day of the week. 400 to 500 members in the church there. So he goes into a very busy ministry there. And uh, sometimes we think, you know, one or two sermons a week is a lot. Well, here's a guy preaching and teaching every day of the week. Twice on Sundays. They celebrated the Lord's Supper once a month, and the congregational singing was allowed. Some, some uh, Protestant churches weren't allowing congregational singing, uh, probably because they thought it would get too rowdy, too wild. Uh, the people couldn't be trusted to, to sing. Um, the, the Catholic Church hadn't done much of that. And so they were doing congregational singing, uh, celebrating the Lord's Table once a month. While in Strasbourg, Calvin worked on a second edition of his institute. So he keeps growing this uh, book, this theology book called The Institutes. And there wasn't a lot of theology books at the time. They couldn't just go to the church bookstore, look at 10 different theology books and pick one. There were very few works that helped a person understand the Bible. You had some sermons that were being printed in books and commentaries. But this institutes really was a bestseller right away because there's so few Protestant works. Protestantism is brand new. And just like today, pastors were struggling with what to preach, what to teach. How do I understand these passages? And so Calvin's book was a a bestseller. That's one of the reasons Pharaoh asked him to stay in Geneva. God's blessed you with all this uh, mind and intellect and ability to understand scripture. You've got to use it to preach in the church. So he continues working on his book to help, really to help pastors back in France, but, but everywhere. It was written in Latin. Most of the six editions I think he published, most were in Latin. So anybody in Europe could read it. But there was one in, in uh, French. Here's Calvin in his study. Their books were huge back then. And they had to bind them up with boards, really, and latch them together. You might see really, really old Bibles sometimes like that. These huge latches. You've got to protect them. So in 1540 in March, he writes his first commentary on Romans. And it included his own Latin translation from the Greek. So I use Calvin's commentary every week when I'm preaching through Romans. It's still a great commentary. That's what's amazing. Here's a, the first generation of reformers. And because they can study the text and they have the Holy Spirit, they can make some great insights. I still love Calvin's commentary. I think I have a quote from it today in my sermon. Uh, He took, people didn't really understand Greek, so he went from Greek to Latin to help the pastors of his day because they weren't trained in Greek. Not all of them were. In August of that same year, he married for the first time. Uh, He married Idalete de Boer. She had been a widow with two children from her previous marriage. So the Reformers believed that a man shouldn't just be single. If he had a desire to marry, he should. Even preachers, even pastors. Catholic Church said no, priests cannot get married by this time. And so Luther went out. And remember they kidnapped nuns who wanted to get out and, and be part of the Reformation. They didn't literally kidnap them. But the, the nuns wanted to get out of the convents. And so they take the wagon secretly in to deliver supplies, sneak some nuns under the cover of the wagon and get them out of there, and then bring them to all the reformers to get married to. And so people were always pressing on Calvin, you need to get married, you need to get married. And he would say, you know, I'm single, I don't need to get married. Singleness can be blessed. And then he meets Idolette and the the pressure from his friends, he, he finally gives in, he loves her, he marries her. Um, So during this time in Strasbourg, the city council in Geneva began to rethink its actions against Calvin. So here are the city council members back in Geneva saying, look, we had it pretty good with Calvin. I mean, now church attendance is down without him here. The alliance with Bern is being strained due to some issues over land quarrels. And most of all, the Roman Catholics were threatening to undo the reforms the city had made. So there are Roman Catholics that are also in Geneva. They're they're moving into Geneva and they're starting to get more influence. And one thing the city council doesn't want to happen is for the city to switch back to Roman Catholicism. I remember up until really modern times, whatever your council or king or whoever your rulers were, whatever their religion was, that was the religion of the nation. That was the religion of the people. So it wasn't like today. I mean, they could have Roman Catholics mixed in there as long as they didn't cause a fuss and start a revolution. But if the city council gets a lot of pressure from the people to switch back to Roman Catholicism, there's going to be a civil war in the city there. So they're really concerned. So they're going to have to come with their hat in their hand, we would say, and beg Calvin to come back. Uh, There's his wife, the only, I think, painting that survives of her. Some fancy dresses there. Are those brass brass beads? Anybody know? Come to our Reformation celebration. Looks like brass. Come to our Reformation celebration because I think there's a costume uh, when we do that, that that is very similar to hers. So on September 21st of that year, the council invites Calvin to return. And here's what he says first of all. He says, rather would I submit to death a hundred times then to that cross, talking about what happened there, on which I had to perish daily a thousand times over. I'd rather die than go back there and be put on the cross a thousand times every day. Nonetheless, he agreed to follow the Lord's calling, whatever that might be. So he, re- he recognized once again, God's calling me to go back. I better go. So in that summer, he agreed that the church in Strasbourg would lend Calvin to Geneva. They needed him so badly, the church in Strasbourg said, we'll lend you there for six months while well, he stayed there the rest of his life. And that really is a good thing, as, as we'll talk about. So let's talk about his later ministry in Geneva. The council brings him back. And he says, fine, but I'm coming back and we're going to get some more things down on paper. We're going to pass the ecclesiastical ordinances and he says it's going to be real clear there's four offices that are going to minister the word in geneva and also there were suburbs and outlying farms and villages geneva is sort of a, a city state we might think of it like that so he said look here's the first one pastors are going to preach and administer the ordinances these are the elders of the church Um, in scripture but often we do sometimes call the the ones who preach and teach the pastors and that's what he was referring to here secondly he said doctors who provide religious instruction remember the word doctor until very recent times means an educated person who can teach that's what the latin word uh, doctor meant teacher someone who studied and in the middle ages people who got very studied in theology were first called doctors of theology. So these are the seminary professors, the college professors, the ones who would teach the adults and teach the pastors religious instruction. Thirdly, he said we have elders who help the pastors and oversee discipline. So here's how I would just take a very slight disagreement here with Calvin, because I think pastors and elders are the same office. There are some who are what we want to call staff elders, those who are paid to preach and teach more and spend more time doing that. But it's not uncommon today to even see this difference between pastors and elders and deacons who would care for the needy. So even with my minor disagreement aside, this is a huge change because, again, the city had been Roman Catholic. They recently converted to Protestant. And here's Calvin saying, let's get on paper the different offices. And he's, he's really trying to get at the city council members have no right to tell the church what to do. Don't come and tell us to use unleavened bread. You're the government. These are the offices in Scripture. And the doctors would be the, the teachers in Ephesians 11. So you have pastors, some who are pastors and teachers. And that's what he's talking about there. So he's trying to make sure they understand these are the ministers in the church the four offices. So he said to settle any issues that come up in the church, we're not going to the city council. We're going to have a consistory or an ecclesiastical court that's created that would judge ecclesiastical affairs. So he's saying we're not going to take this to the city council. We're going to take this to men in the church. These would be elders from the main church in Geneva and then the other smaller churches around. And they're going to decide on matters of the church. So in 1542, Calvin then publishes a book on prayers, a book on hymns, and a catechism of the church of Geneva. A catechism is simply something you train your children up by. You teach them theology by asking them questions, and then they give the answer. And Calvin himself would catechize kids in the afternoon on Sundays in between services. So here he is coming back. He's older now. He's already got a cane drawing of him coming back into Geneva. But his troubles aren't over yet. Any man worth his salt in ministry is going to be challenged. During his time in Geneva, though, he preached over 2,000 sermons. 2,000 sermons. His sermons lasted more than an hour, and he reportedly did not use any notes. That's pretty amazing. Not that he preached an hour. I mean, we think that's a modern invention, but Reformers, they said, you know, these 15-minute homilies in the Catholic Church are ridiculous. We're going to preach the Word. And they bumped it up to 45 minutes to an hour. The Puritans would even go longer, sometimes an hour and a half later. So in 1549, Dennis Ragnar, a professional scribe, began to write down his sermons. So they're published today. I've got his sermons on Ephesians, some on Genesis, Galatians. The sermons are quite different than his commentaries. His commentaries were written for pastors to interpret the word rightly. The sermons were written and spoken for the average person. In fact, John Knox, the reformer of Scotland who learned from Calvin, was on his deathbed And he wanted something read to him. And he asked his wife, bring me the sermons of Calvin on Ephesians. And just read them to me until I die. Because he said, those are the best sermons I'd ever heard from Calvin on the Bible. By the way, I didn't mention, when Calvin came back, Do you know what the text that he chose to preach on was? When he came back into the city? He had been preaching on Acts before he left, and then he just stopped and, you know, they, he, they got kicked out. When he comes back, he picks up in the next paragraph of the one that he had left off from three years ago, continuing his exposition of Acts. I believe it was Acts. I don't have a slide for that, though. In uh, 1549, his wife died. She had given birth to a son in 1542, but he was born prematurely, so he did not live very long. Calvin expressed his sorrow for his wife. He says, I've been bereaved of the best friend of my life, of one who, if it has been so ordained, would willingly have shared not only my poverty, but also my death. During her life, she was the faithful helper of my ministry. From her, I never experienced the slightest hindrance. So sometimes people hear of John Calvin or they hear of what's commonly called Calvinism and they think this guy, you know, he's just a cold-hearted, stuffy-headed professor type in his ivory tower. Doesn't have a feeling, doesn't have an emotion in his body. Well, he does. If you read any of his writings, you'll see it's very pastoral. He sounds like a pastor, not a theologian often. And here's just a little glimpse into his heart here. He was shaken. They'd only been married about nine years or so. And he's pretty upset. He's lost a child with her. and He doesn't remarry after this. He goes on to live out his life as a single man. Here's a drawing that was made. This was in the 17th century, so 1600s, a little bit later, and they would do these woodcut drawings. And this is uh an idea of all the men involved in the Reformation. And so they're in they're in Latin there, but you can see some of these names. Um we've got Booster up top. Right in the center by the candle is Luther. And the the Latin there going right by the candle, says, The candle is lighted. We cannot blow it out. Meaning the Reformation, the candle has been lit. The fire has been lit for the Reformation. Now we can see in the darkness. And we can't blow it out. In fact, more people are gathering around Luther's candle to see the light. So to his, what is that, Luther's right, our left, is Melanchthon. That was Luther's right-hand scholar. The one who would take over after Luther died. But look who's on our right of Luther, Luther's left, John Calvin, and he is turning to the one who would take over after him, Theodore Beza. Theodore Beza. So you've got Luther and Calvin right next to each other. Luther's the preacher of the Reformation. Calvin's a great preacher, but he's often referred to as a theologian of the Reformation. I kind of like Calvin's sermons better, but Luther was more fiery. He could attract the crowds. He was... He was incendiary with his sermons sometimes. Uh, Calvin wrote books and preached. So great preacher, but his lasting legacy, especially early on, is going to be the institutes, the commentaries, and his sermons that are put in print. And then there's some others here. Well, we might uh, mention John Knox in coming weeks here. We've already talked about John Huss. He's the one on the far left of the table there. Uh, Jan Huss, he was a um, pre-reformer. And I think we got the Pope at the bottom there. He's got, I don't know if that's the devil with horns there. and All of his cardinals there. They're not named, but they're trying to blow out the candle as best they can. It even looks like one of them has a magic wand there. Trying to do some hocus pocus. Uh, Somebody will have to do some research on on this drawing. Others, far top right, uh, William Perkins. He's the one who would start the Puritan movement in England. And the six, uh, late 1500s, Peter Martyr, Zwingli at the very top behind Luther. Zanke over there, he's got quite the beard. That's pretty much everyone, I think. Wycliffe. Wycliffe is on our right on the far side of the table. So we have Wycliffe on one side and Huss on the other. And the idea is they were the ones who helped start what Luther was going to finish or ignite with the Reformation. So I thought this was an interesting drawing. I'm just not sure what that horned dog is doing there. But he Look, they're trying to blow out the candle. You can see all four of them. The evil four horsemen of the apocalypse is probably what Luther called them. Uh, I would I wouldn't doubt. He believed the Pope was the Antichrist. And they're all trying to blow out that candle. And the thing in Latin says, we cannot blow it out. All right, well, let's talk about the conflict because Calvin's days in Geneva after they invited him back, it wasn't all roses. In 1546 those who did not like Calvin's reforms began to become organized. They began to get organized in an opposition and they called themselves, or they were known as the Libertines. They thought that Calvin was too strict. They thought he was too harsh. The reforms that he was making were were too hard and they wanted more liberty, these people did, to do things their way. They were called the Libertines. So in January of that year, uh, the first one that really is, is known by name is a playing card maker. Playing cards, which essentially is gambling back then. And that would have been outlawed by Calvin's reforms. His name was Pierre Mo, And he called Calvin a Picard, which is a derogatory name in French. And that's not going to be enough. You can't just say, oh, I don't like the guy. I'll call him names. You have to make up something. And so they said, he's a false teacher. He's teaching false doctrine. And this began to spread around the city. And as a result, the consistory, which is consistories, the elders around the city that gathered together, they came to Pierre and said, that's not right. You're in sin. They made him publicly parade through the city and beg God for forgiveness. So they said, you've embarrassed our preacher, our famous preacher, John Calvin, You're going to go through the city and beg God for forgiveness and everyone will see it. Well, the Libertines were not very happy, but at least Pierre is pretty quiet after that. Several months later, Ami Perrin, the man who had officially invited Calvin back to Geneva, so he was on the city council previously, he had invited Calvin to come back. He began talking against Calvin. The consistory brings him forward and says, what's going on? You have breached the anti-dancing law. We laugh at that today, you know, dancing. But back then, dancing and drinking and partying was something that was a way of life. And it had gotten to where there was so much sin during the Roman Catholic days that they were always dealing with these sin issues. And they had outlawed dancing, which meant drinking parties as well. And so they brought Ami Perrin before the consistory and disciplined him. Well, that's going to cause more hostility towards Calvin. Anytime you do church discipline, even today, there's always people who don't like it. That's their friend. That's, that's their, their friend. The elders, the consistory must just be confused. They don't understand. And so now you start to build up animosity in the whole city. So much so that the Libertines were denied communion because they were living an ungodly life. But they came to church because all people had to come to church by law. You had to show up at church on Sunday at least. They came to church, and it was once-a-month communion, and the church elders said, we're not giving you communion, you're living a life of sin. And they said, you will give us communion, I we'll gather together on the floor and come draw our swords to get communion. You can see in the drawing here, the guy's about to draw his sword, and there's Calvin, famous drawing here. He's, he's got his hands down on the communion plate, and he's saying, get back. And some of his elders are surrounding him there. And these libertines are demanding that Calvin serve them communion. And he doesn't do it. Even though they threaten to chop off his head, he doesn't do it. So they don't get communion. Essentially, they're church disciplined. That's, that's what it means to not receive communion. In June 1547, somebody sends Calvin a letter threatening his life. But by the way, this is a picture of the cathedral today. What they did was the Roman Catholics built these big cathedrals. And then when the Protestants took over, they just ripped out all the stuff that was Roman Catholic, all the statues, all the paintings, get it all out of here, get the altar out, and then they built a pulpit off to the side. And and that's what you can see right here. So the communion table is down on the floor, but behind it is the pulpit, and Calvin would go up those stairs into the pulpit. But it's it's sort of off to the side of the cathedral, because if you put it in the very far back where the altar used to be for the Roman Catholics, that's too far from where the people sit. So there it is today. If you go to Geneva, you can see it. The cathedral's still there. Calvin got everything out that was Roman Catholic that he could, except the cross on the very top of that steeple. And he even said, I don't want that cross up there, because it's not commanded in Scripture that we need to have a cross. And he goes, I wish God would remove it. And sure enough, lightning struck it a few years later and knocked it off the top. And it's never been there since. So a letter got sent to Calvin threatening him with his life. A man named Jackus... I believe that's how you say it. Somebody corrected me. Jacques? Jacques, whatever. Confessed to the crime under torture. They had to torture him, the city council did, to get him to confess. Whether he did it or not, we don't know. And he was condemned to death by the civil court. By 1553, the Libertines had gained the upper hand. They had enough people on the city council to do something about it. So Calvin says, it's done. I'm going to resign. I know you guys have it in for me. And they refused to let him resign. They wanted him to stay on as the pastor. So there's a a picture of it today. You can go there and visit. You can see how the pulpits, and, and some Protestant Presbyterian, especially churches and Reformed, will have pulpits sort of like that today. Not off to the side. Usually it's to the center. But they built it to the side to get closer on one of those arches to get closer to the people. Calvin's position changed with uh, the events surrounding the arrest and execution of Michael Servetus. So the city council had it in for Calvin, but they didn't want him to resign. And then suddenly this trial comes about with Michael Servetus. And that changes his position with the city council. So let's look at Michael Servetus because a lot of uh, Armenians today will bring up Michael Servetus. So if you mention Calvin, you'll probably at some point hear about Michael Servetus. Servetus was an anti-Trinitarian, so he was what was known as a heretic then and a heretic today. His views against the Trinity were well known. The Catholics wanted to catch him and burn him at the stake, and the Protestants wanted to catch him and burn him at the stake. Why? Because a heretic back then was seen as a rebellious insurrectionist. Remember, the government and the religion tied together. You overthrow one, you overthrow the other because they're tied together. If the king is Protestant, and you rebel against Protestantism, then you're going to have to kick the king out to get your religion back, Roman Catholicism. So anytime this kind of stuff happens, they are seen as a belligerent, a insurrectionist. Servetus was sort of traveling around Europe, escaping these different countries when they would get close to catching him. He was writing books. I think he mapped out The um, pathways of the heart and the way that the blood pumps around the cardiovascular system. He was just doing various studies, writing books on various things. But he was a staunch anti-Trinitarian. He was going around telling people that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were not God. There was only one God. So he exchanged a number of letters with Calvin. He's writing Calvin. He's saying, Calvin, you're wrong. Here's why you're wrong. I'm coming to Geneva I'm going to spread my teaching and my books. Calvin said, don't come. They're going to catch you. City council is going to burn you at the stake. You really shouldn't come. And then finally, like any pastor sometimes has to do, he just refused to answer the letters and said, he's a heretic. I'm not listening anymore. So what does Servetus do? He shows up. He had been in hiding in Vienna and he was arrested there and brought in for questioning, but he escaped from prison there and while en route to Italy, he stopped in Geneva for unknown reasons. So nobody really knows why he went to Geneva. Probably because he had already been writing Calvin. And it was known for its Protestant Reformation. And heretics always go wherever the action is. And so he was arrested there and tried. The city council found him guilty of treason. The Geneva court, so the secular courts, which had gotten the opinion of other Protestant cities in Switzerland. All the other Protestant cities agreed they needed to put him to death because that was the law of the land. So he was burned at the stake on October 27, 1553, though Calvin had requested that he simply be beheaded. So what people will say today is, well, Calvin killed Michael Servetus. How can you agree with his theology? So on and so on. Well, he didn't kill Michael Servetus. His elders didn't do it. His church didn't do it. It was a city council. Now, they did ask Calvin to come testify as the pastor and theologian of the town. He did say, yes, here's what the Bible says. Yes, Michael Servetus denies scripture. He is a heretic. And the city said, we're going to burn him. And he said, no, it would be more humane just to do the beheading, which was done back then. Modern readers look at that and they say, oh, beheading. See, that's still wicked. Well, he would have. if Calvin hadn't testified, he still would have died. He still would have been burned. That was what happened with heretics all the way up until probably 17, 1800s, founding of America, you know, separation of church and state. Because he's a well-known heretic, because news of his arrest and trial was widely spread throughout Europe, the Libertines in Geneva had no choice but to side with Calvin in their condemnation of Servetus. So today, what people think is the most awful thing about Calvin at that time was the best thing that people could say about Calvin, that he fought against the heretics. And that got him on good terms with the Libertines again. Calvin gained great prestige in Geneva and elsewhere as a defender of the Christian faith. So when I say this, I'm not saying we should do those things today. I'm glad that we don't even have to deal with that. I'm glad that churches realized, hey, we're not here to put people to death for their beliefs. But that was the way things happened in those days. And it did turn out to be the reason that the city council let off on Calvin. Because now he's famous in all of Europe. No matter what country servetus would have went to they were going to try to put him to trial and put him to death so here's here's how it goes today you know there's an arminian and a Calvinist debating back and forth and they're quoting scripture and they're quoting scripture and finally you know the calvinist says romans 9 10 through 23 and the arminian says servetus and then the arminian has to say sorry i panic you're saying no there's this verse on election and predestination the arminian says no free will you know all those who come to me and he died for the world and back and forth, and eventually the Armenian just yells out, "Well, Michael Servetus, you know Calvin killed him, so many Armenians today try to use the Servetus trial to discredit calvinism and if it personally for me, I just say, what does the Bible say? you know don 't even call it Calvinism if you don 't like that if you don 't like John Calvin, what does the Bible say? What does Ephesians one say? What does Romans eight and nine say? What does first Peter one say let 's just go to the Bible Oh by the way, that 's what John Calvin said that you know, he agreed, but Calvin said he didn't want it to be called after himself. He said, bury me or there's no name on my tombstone. So no one knows where he's buried today. He said, I don't want men to refer to my teaching, which is just Paul's teaching, which was brought forth by Augustine and then to Luther and then to Calvin. He said, I don't, I don't want people to call it that. And they didn't for a while, but later uh, we'll talk about it, uh, why they called it Calvinism. So Calvin's finally victory over the Libertines would not take place until 1555, when so many people came from France that were Protestant to get away from the persecution. They came to Geneva, they became citizens, and now there's more French Protestants who love Calvin than there are Libertines in the city. And the balance of power shifted. Nobody's calling for Calvin's death anymore. Finally, this guy, Ami Perrin, who was sort of the leader by this point of the Libertines, All his followers fled from the city because they didn't like how things were turning out. They tried to do a coup. They tried an insurrection to get control over the city council and the church. And it didn't work, so they left. And then any libertines left in the city were arrested and executed. Last few years of Calvin's life here, he is basically uncontested. His authority there, he enjoyed an international reputation, much like Luther. He sided with Zwingli's memorial view of the Lord's table, even though I think Calvin added a little bit better view. He he said it's a memorial, but Christ is present with all of us in a special way when we take the Lord's Supper, not in the elements, not body and blood that we're taking, but he's with his church in a spiritual sense. Nonetheless, Calvin did attempt to build unity among all Protestant leaders. So even though he was at odds with the Lutheran view of the Lord's table, he, he wanted there to be unity. So in 1555, he welcomed the Protestant English refugees, people who had fled England from Mary I. Most notably was John Knox. And John Knox would take this teaching from Scripture that we call Calvinism back to Britain, and particularly Scotland. In 1559, he starts a college in Geneva, which became Calvin College, and today the University of Geneva, which is completely liberal today. They, They don't even really care about Calvin. In fact, in the 1800s, they had a bunch of uh, either the church building or the, the college, I can't remember, had a bunch of Calvin's sermons, and they were just getting rid of them, throwing them in the trash. And Someone found them and brought them back into print. Theodore Beza is selected as the school's first rector. So Calvin has a young preacher, pastor, student that becomes more knowledgeable, more advanced, excels the other students, and he becomes the head of the school there. And he'll take over as well at the church when Calvin dies. So there's Knox and Calvin there. It's manly to have a long beard back then. Most of us don't today. Here's a a wall. You can go to Geneva, Switzerland and see the Reformation wall. Pharaoh, Calvin, Knox, and Beza. So the major reformers that were in Geneva at one time. And uh, this wall is often defamed. They throw all kinds of rainbow stuff on it. And in modern times, they... They tried to destroy it. It's been repaired, cleaned many times. Uh, these are big big statues. Anybody been there? Yeah, these are cut in, out from the rock here, and, and they're large. I wish I had a person standing in front to show you, but if you ever get a chance to go, you can see the church. You can see Calvin's chair there. In his later age, he, he sat in this chair all the time in his study, but in, in later times, he got sick. He had a fever in 1558. He thought he was going to die. So he quickly rushed to revise his institutes. And uh, the result was another expansion of that from 21 chapters to 80 chapters. Uh, But this chair was used for Calvin to preach out of when he couldn't stand up. They would seat him or haul him up in the chair, and he would preach from the chair. Uh, He did recover from that fever, but he later strained his voice. He was always sickly, he had um, asthma, he had all kinds of bowel problems. That was pretty common back then, but he had been more sickly even from his childhood. And so this began to catch up with him. He started having violent coughing. This resulted in a burst of blood vessels in his lungs. His health continued to decline. He preached his last sermon, February 1564. He died. He couldn't preach for some months after that. He finally died at the age of 54. May 27, 1564. And it's, it's kind of interesting. Spurgeon died, I think he was 55, Calvin died at 54. They say it's because these guys gave it all and died early. I don't know. They both had health conditions from many years previous that caught up with them. Uh, initially, his body was laid in state so people could come by and look, and many people did come to see it. The adoration it was so great that his fellow Reformers feared a cult following would develop. As a result, they buried him in an unmarked grave in a public cemetery. That was his wish anyway. And so no one knows where his grave is today. Uh, You can't find it when you go to Geneva because no one marked it. So here's a, a famous painting. He's on his deathbed and there are eight men who were there listening to him. Even on his deathbed, he was teaching the Bible. He was trying to preach a sermon to those men in the room and they were all with him praying and helping him be encouraged as he goes into the next world. Let's talk a bit about his writings because they are things I would recommend to you. Even if you're not that interested in Calvin or that interested in, in theology in general, the Institutes is a helpful reference work to have. It's easier to read in some respects than theology books today. The only reason it's hard to read is because the sentence structure is older because they translated it into English in the 1800s. So it depends on when it gets translated from Latin to English. There are some more modern translations that help. But just like any good translation, they, they try to keep the sentence structure like the original. And in Latin, you write, you write long sentences with lots of commas. That's hard for us today in English. We're, we're told short sentences, you know, got to be action verbs, no passive verbs, no long uh, sentences. Well, that's how they wrote back then because they wanted their thought to continue. And sometimes you got a whole paragraph that's one sentence. Uh, The Institutes were a summary of his views on Christian theology. Together with his commentaries, they they helped give us a full picture of his perspective. The first edition of his Institutes came out in 1536. And then he went on to expand it um, into 80 chapters later. So here's the final edition. He's got uh, four books. So they published as a set of four books. Today you can get it in one combined or, or sometimes two. Uh, it was on The first book was on God the Creator. So people who blast Calvin, oh, that's all he talks about is election, predestination. Well, the first book was on just God the Creator. Then, secondly, on the Redeemer in Christ. And it wasn't until the third one that he talks about receiving the grace of Christ and election. He even put prayer, I think, before he did his chapter on predestination, so the third one he talks about the Holy Spirit as well, and then the fourth one, which kind of gets a little rougher when I read originally all four books the The fourth one gets hard because he's talking about the Roman Catholics and he's citing them by name and he's citing their books. It's a little harder to to follow, but it's on the society of Christ or the church so key themes he has a very strong emphasis on scripture. This was new. We take it for granted today because we can pick up any book and, and it's always, in and, and good churches, the scriptures are central. But, but in the Catholic Church, it wasn't. And so the Reformers really made that central. They put the pulpit right up front and you're going to hear the word preached. And so that's a huge emphasis here in his institutes. Um, he says, look, That's where the knowledge of God is found. Yeah, he talks about general creation, how you can know that there is a God. But if you want to know anything else, especially how to be saved, you've got to go to the Scriptures. And the authority of Scripture, he said, is self-authenticating. Now, this is a, a huge, important doctrine. How do we know the Bible's true? Well, the Catholics would say, well, we have tradition and the Bible. And the way that you can trust our tradition is through our miracles. We have Saint so-and-so whose hand is over there from 200 years ago. There it is. You can touch it and be healed. You won't have COVID anymore if you touch that dead hand. And they said, all these miracles, they've been recorded. That proves our authority. And whenever we interpret scripture, that is the authoritative interpretation. Calvin said, no, the Holy Spirit is in us. And the Bible working through the Spirit to interpret it, is self-authenticating. It proves itself, and the Spirit in us confirms that truth, which makes it very subjective for unbelievers. They don't like that, you know. How can you say the Bible's true? Oh, you're just circular argument, circular argument. Well, at the end of it, everybody's circular in their arguments. Even the unbeliever gets back to, well, man says it. Our mind says it. The textbook over there says it. Darwin says it. There's Some basic level of argumentation everybody gets down to. Uh, The Christian can only go as far as God and what he's revealed in Scripture. Uh, His institute defended the Trinity, defended divine providence, defended predestination and salvation. He argued against the Roman Catholic use of religious images. Images, He said that's idolatry. And he denied papal authority. Uh, Other key themes, he talked about original sin. This is what Augustine had taught in the 400s. That man is born in sin. He has a sin nature that is in him that causes acts of sin to come out of his heart into his actual life. Um, that's because of the fall. And that's in Romans 5. Uh, he said we're justified by faith alone and Christ alone. And he said we need to have obedience though. The Catholics don't like justification because that says, oh, you're saved. Now you can go live as a sinner. no. The reformers emphasize obedience after you were saved, after you were justified. And he said there's an invisible church. That's the true church. It's not what the Roman Catholics say. It's the people who are actually saved through faith alone and Christ alone. There's only two sacraments. Not the sacrament of marriage. Not the sacrament of the holy unction at death. And not baptism as a baby. But he says, look, the true sacraments are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And he held that memorial view of communion here's a picture of the newest translation and probably the easiest to read it's a new translation and it's not the last one it's not the 80 chapters it's the middle one he wrote one in the middle of his ministry that was for french-speaking pastors and banner of truth a few years ago asked a french scholar who's a protestant if they could do a new translation of that french edition which had never come over into english so we have that one in our bookstore uh, because it's more readable. I read through it with some guys last year. It still has some challenging sentences occasionally, but it's the most readable because it's the newest translated in English. Here's some other ones. Here's the first um, one of the first editions here. They didn't have nice book covers. They had those boards. So you would open it and see sort of what's on our book covers today. So here's the Latin on, uh, on the left here. Later in the 1800s, A man named Henry Beveridge would translate it into English, and that's probably the most well-known one because it's been around the longest in English. I'm not sure if it was the first English one, but uh, it was a major English translation, still in print today. And then the scholarly edition, the one that you have to cite in papers at the seminary or wherever you're writing, citing Calvin, is the McNeil edition. It's pretty much uh, beverage, but it's been updated, edited by McNeil with new footnotes. So the first time I read it, I did the two volumes on the right. And uh, that was a long process. I think I did it over two years, Autumn and I both. As we were doing our Bible in in two years plan, we did uh, Calvin's Institutes as well. But I don't recommend you start with that. I recommend you start with that one if you want to read the Institutes. His commentaries are great, too. In uh, 1540, he did Romans. That was the first one he went on. Uh, You can kind of see there, he went through all of them, except 2nd and 3rd John and Revelation and the New Testament. Uh, He said Revelation was a challenge, and he wasn't going to do a commentary on that one. He also wrote commentaries from the Old Testament, Genesis through Joshua, Psalms, and Isaiah. Uh, The stenographer notes were published from his lectures on Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the Minor Prophets. So there are some Old Testament books he didn't do as well but we have quite a few. Uh, There's the set that came out at the 500th anniversary in 2009, I think it was, by Baker. And I was just learning about Reformed theology, and this was 2009, 2010. And I thought, well, I've got to get Calvin's commentaries. I don't know much about him, but I need that set so I can look up some uh, interpretations from Calvin. And it just so happened that this was out in print at that time, and I got it on sale at Christian Book for 99 buck. I think it originally came out it was around 300. And then after that, they only published so many and they, they quit publishing these. So you can't hardly find them in hardback anymore. A great set to have. All right. Uh, here's a map to finish out here. Calvinism would spread. It will go to England and it will influence what becomes the Anglican Church. It will go to the blue areas, Scotland, parts of France, the Netherlands. Uh, it does not go to the Eastern Orthodox. Uh, Lutheran stays Lutheran. And some areas of Europe remain Roman Catholic. So next week, we'll talk about the Synod of Dort and uh, Arminianism and probably get into the English Reformation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time today. Thank you for men like John Calvin who wrote so much we can learn from. We know he wasn't perfect and, and we're not perfect either, Lord. But there's a lot we can learn from men like that who preached and wrote and remained faithful amidst trials. So help us to be grateful for those who went before us. In the name of Christ, amen.